Thank you that uh, once again we can dedicate a portion of the calendar to celebrate, to remember the amazing gift that you have bestowed upon men and women, your son, Jesus. Guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for these ancient words that are tried and true, for they stem from your very lips. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 2. It is good to have you here this morning. The famous impressionist German painter Max Lieberman states that when I look at a Rembrandt, I want to give up. <laughs> Indeed, I can't think of a, well, Rembrandt's got to be one of my favorite artists. If I'm at a museum and they have a Rembrandt, I, I make a beeline to that room. He's known as the master of light, and Rembrandt painted numerous portraits, including 40 self-portraits, which is interesting. One of the earliest self-portraits is in the stoning of Stephen. One of the men picking up a stone is Rembrandt. It was a cameo appearance, and in fact, he wove his portrait in many biblical scenes, such as the prodigal son to, he says, I identify with these characters. It's interesting, these past couple of Sundays, we've been walking through an art gallery, the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at some portraits. There's no cameo portraits. Uh, and our attention has been addressed not to the Rembrandts or the Mona Lisas, but our, our focus has been on some rather obscure paintings hanging in the gallery. And this morning and next week, we're looking at two elderly individuals. We're looking at Simeon, and we want to look at Anna next week. And so you should have a set of notes there before you. If you are watching online, there should be a set of notes there available to you as well. The desires this morning, I kind of want to first set the scene. I want to set some of the history behind this so we understand what's going on here. These two elderly individuals, Simeon and Anna, play a key role in the Gospel of Luke. According to Deuteronomy 19, you have to have two witnesses to validate a claim. Luke is pinning his gospel to say, this is the Savior for the entire world. And here we have two witnesses that validate, yes, this baby Jesus really is the salvation for the world. And it's the role they're going to play in this. And as we've heard from the text, we're going to see that unfold with Simeon's prophecy that is given. Next week, as I say, we're going to look at Anna. But if you do a comparative study and you look at Simeon and Anna, which follows in Luke chapter 2, the text, there's a lot of overlap. First, we see the background is given for both. Both characters are seen in the temple. Both characters signify the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, salvation, and there's a temporal marker that's given for both characters. So we want to watch this as we move along. As the text states in verse 25, let's look at this, Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we're told there's a man in Jerusalem, and the, the parents in verse 27 give their child 
to him. And it says, as was customary. And you go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? We, we need to jump back. And I know this wasn't in the scripture reading, but if you jump back to verse 22, let's, let's paint the scene so that we know what's happening here. It says, now when the time came, verse 22, for their, and this is interesting, purification according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus. Now, if you know your Old Testament, only the mother needs to be purified. On the 40th day, remember day eight, the child circumcised, 32 or so late, days later, on the 40th day, she is to be purified in the court of women. In fact, if we were to go into the temple uh, at the time of Herod, go up the steps, uh, the 210 steps up to, to the third gate, which is the main entrance, and we go into the court of Gentiles. We then move to the southern gate inside the temple proper, which just takes us into the court of women. If we walk through the court of women, we'll come to the steps right before the Nicanor gate. And it's there where babies were dedicated, but it was also in that court of women where women were purified, consecrated after uh, having given birth. And, and the question is, and Luke says, it's their purification. And scholars debate this. Why does Joseph need to be purified or sanctified in this process? Well, two re possibilities. One, Joseph was involved in the delivery when Jesus was born. So he's unclean like Mary. Or since the child was being dedicated, both Joseph and Mary wanted to be clean. Clearly, we know Joseph and Mary are very devout. They're godly parents. The text told us that back in chapter 1. And so we see in verse 22 of Luke's gospel, they have brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, Luke gives us a statement. So this helps us. And when we get to Simeon, it says, just as is written in the law, this is Exodus 13, every firstborn male will be set apart for the Lord. According to the Old Testament law, your firstborn was to be dedicated to God. It's, that child is his. And that is what Mary and Joseph, being good, devout parents, are doing with Joseph. And the text tells us, and to offer a sacrifice. So they're to bring a sacrifice. And normally, it was to be a bobo. It was to be a lamb. But if they couldn't afford it, they could bring turtle doves. On a partridge in a pear tree. No, just, just the turtle doves, right? And the text tells us, look what it says in verse 24, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So what does that tell us about the financial status of Mary and Joseph? They're not well-to-do, but they are being faithful to what is called in the purification of themselves as well as dedicating Jesus to the Lord. And that's setting, that's the backdrop here as we come to the description of Simeon. Now let's go to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. And I'm reading out of the Net Bible. It says, looking for, and that term is used of Anna as well, looking for the restoration. You might have the consolation or the encouragement. I like restoration. The restoration of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord. So we're assuming that he's up in years. Now, Anna, we're going to be told, is really old. 
All right, we'll get to her next week. So Simeon, directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts. Whether he's a priest or not, we do not know. But based on the following, it would appear that he is a priest. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was customary, according to the law. Remember, we're in the, the court of women. Gentiles aren't allowed into this region. It's just the men and Jewish men and Jewish women. It says, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God. And we'll get to the next part here. But there's a few things I want you to see in, in describing Simeon. First of all, you'll notice that the text tells us he's righteous and devout. Does that sound familiar? Remember, those are similar words used of Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. And we looked at those two individuals previously. They were known as being righteous Righteous is used of another man who held Jesus in his arms later in the Gospel of Luke. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He didn't hold Jesus in his arms to bless him. He held Jesus in his arms to bury him. But the, the point is made. And according to Luke 23, Joseph of Arimathea, he was good and righteous. He was looking for the kingdom of God. It would seem that through the gospel of Luke, righteousness is what marks a man or a woman who is sold out to the Lord. One who has their focus on the Lord and his activity. It's why the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 10, the righteous live by faith. Here's Simeon, all these years, been faithfully serving Think about all the baby dedications he's been involved with, right? It's day after day. Oh, no, here we go again, right? Oy vey. And, and every day walking up those steps to go into the temple wondering, could this be the day that we will see God's salvation? Yet he lives by faith. He's faithful, just like Joseph of Arimathea. And so the text tells us that this elderly man is righteous and devout. The next key, the line though is key. It says he's looking for the restoration of Israel. Throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people were looking for the deliverance of Israel. It was the promise made to them. The promises to Abraham, the promises to David, and we've already seen that in Zechariah's hymn last week, or read Mary's hymn, the Magnificat, earlier in chapter 1. She rehearses those covenants, the longing that they have for restoration. As one commentator states, this desire for consolation characterizes the believer or God-fear in the Gospel of Luke. Time and time again, they're looking for the restoration. Even Joseph of Arimathea, as he takes down the body of Jesus, it says he's looking for the kingdom. He's looking for the end. And the text that comes through here, this encouragement of Israel, is reminiscent of Isaiah 61. Listen to this text, Isaiah 61. The spirit of God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This text, by the way, is what Jesus is going to cite in Luke chapter 4 in his first sermon that's recorded at the synagogue of Nazareth. 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Isaiah 61 is screaming through the text. And this description of Simeon, I can assure you, Isaiah 61 has got to be on the forefront of his mind. Do you realize in the Dead Sea Scrolls, documents that were found in 19, starting in 1948, over 800 manuscripts, some say now about 1,000 manuscripts, in these numerous about 12, 13 caves. Do you know which Old Testament book is most prevalent in these manuscripts that are from around the intertestament up through the first century? Isaiah. It's Isaiah. Why? Because they are longing for deliverance. They're longing for the promises of Isaiah to become, come forward in this first century. This is what, and so for Simeon, ah, oh, he's very familiar with Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 40. I have no doubt. He's a good priest. He would know these things. And it says he's longing for this restoration, the promise of, of those who mourn to be comforted, those that hurt to be healed. When John the Baptist was imprisoned and he sent the two, two to, to f- figure out, is Jesus, are you really the coming one? What does Jesus say? Here's my bloodline? Here's my genealogy? No. What's he say? I give sight to the blind. I set the captive free. I help them. He's quoting Isaiah 61. These are my credentials. This is what I have come to do. Now, if that doesn't excite you, it should. It makes your socks roll up and down, right? This This is the restoration of Israel. And then it says, another characteristic of Simeon here is that the Holy Spirit is on him. Three times the text tells us this. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit plays a key role in Luke-Acts, as well as in the Gospel of John. These two Gospels, Luke and John, highlight the role of the Spirit time and time again. But in Luke's Gospel, it's an indication God is at work. God's hand is going before us. And notice what the the Spirit does for Simeon. He informs them, you aren't going to croak until you see the Lord, right? You see the Messiah. The the Holy Spirit is what has guided Simeon to the temple that day to, I mean, think about it. We've got probably several hundreds, if not a couple thousand worshipers here in the temple complex. He just happened to get up to to, to meet Mary and and Joseph. There are a lot of other priests who could have performed the ceremony. No, no, the, the Holy Spirit is directing. It's key. The Holy Spirit serving as the, as the spiritual GPS for Simeon, Right. Here you are. This is the, and so what do we see? The role of the Spirit. It reiterates Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, this is God's cosmic plan. Get out of the way. Either get on board or get out of the way. And third, God needed to intervene. This isn't just happenstance. And, and so, in fact, as you reread Luke 1 and 2 for Christmas, note the role of the Spirit throughout those two chapters. It's key, and you'll see it throughout the rest of this book. And so, these are the descriptors, right? One who is devout, righteous, looking for the restoration, and directed by the Holy Spirit. 
And it says in verse 27, so Simeon, directed by the Spirit, takes baby Jesus in his arms, as was customary according again to Exodus 13. Ironic, isn't it? It will be Jesus' arms, however, that will be outstretched on a tree in order for us to be embraced by God. And yet at this moment, this elderly man is holding the salvation of Israel. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm sure it took a few minutes to get the words out. And Simeon says he blesses God, the text tells us. It's the first response of Zechariah after he had been struck down and couldn't speak couldn't hear, remember this? And later, he will speak after the baby's born, and it says he blesses. It's the same term as used here. It's the same term used of the crowd when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. They will bless God. And it's how this book ends, the Luke. The disciples, remember, they're gathered together, rejoicing and blessing God. The followers of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke understand this one is our salvation, the source of peace and hope, the, the means for us to have a restored relationship with God and the avenue for true healing. Note there's no questioning why the Lord waited. Simeon doesn't have a dialogue with God and say, you know, I like to discuss this. Why couldn't you have done this when I was younger? <laughs> I'd like to just seeing this child grow up. I'm not going to have that opportunity. No. It, it, it's a, he breaks out in celebration in worship. I wrote, worship is not an exaltation of self. Worship is not a rote script. Worship is not a set of boring cliches, nor it is a grudging gift of compulsory service to God. Rather, worship is an act energized by the Holy Spirit, ordained by the Father, and centered on Christ. That's worship. And Simeon sees God Almighty embodied in human flesh, holding him, and he breaks out in blessing God. Notice that he says in verse 29, Now according to your word. I love this. He can trust himself to death, knowing that life and immortality have been brought to light through the gospel. And, and I also love in his statement here, the text tells us, there, he understands, Simeon understands God's word to be true. These prophecies of old, these weren't prophets who just kind of made up these things. No, Simeon took them to be valid, took them to be accurate, could understand them and saw them to be relevant, right? It's vital. God's word is not a bunch of concocted fables. <laughs> and just as it's promised that God, Christ would come, born in a little town called Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, there's a day coming when our Christ will return, the text tells us. And it's as sure as Isaiah was fulfilled in the time of Simeon, right? This is what we have here. And so we have is that, 
he breaks out in song and he says, he blesses God according to your word. Permit your servant to depart in peace. It's what the angel had proclaimed. Back in chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among with whom the God Almighty is pleased. Catch that last part. Simeon participates in the promise of peace. Here it is, right? And so he says, let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen, and I love this, your salvation. Seeing God's salvation is a major theme throughout the Old Testament because it, it originates and it's executed by the Lord. There's another powerful text here, not only Isaiah 61, but Isaiah 40. If you're writing down these texts, you, you may want to jot those to the side. But Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. This is, by the way, the same text that will be used by John the Baptist throughout his ministry. If you look at all four Gospels, Isaiah 40 is directly linked. And what's it say? A voice cries, this is Isaiah 40, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places a plain. If you've been in Israel, you would claim that promise fast. <laughs> Everything's uphill, all right? And it says, and the glory of the Lord should be revealed we beheld his glory, John tells us. John the Baptist delivers this one that has been promised, according to Isaiah 40, is here. And all flesh, the text says, listen to this, shall see it together. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the text? Look what Simeon says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. It's been revealed. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 61. This is it. Uh, and, and notice what else he says. For you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. There's two ways that you could read this. It could be light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to the Jew, or it's a light which is revelation for the Gentiles and glory for the Jews. And I prefer the, the latter rendering. That is, this light is for both Gentiles and Jews. Light occurs 23 times in just John's gospel alone. What is intriguing is that light, life, and the law, or God's word, were often associated together. Think of Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And one scholar argues that the backdrop of John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, is the lighting of the candelabra in the court of women during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is preaching the white space, okay? So we probably should cut the video, but we won't. I can't help, we're in the court of women. There's the candelabra. As, as Simeon says, 
here's the light of the world. Here it is. And what was the, what was the candelabra symbolizing? It, it was to, to commemorate the exodus. And, and according to the reading of Zechariah 14, the context of that lighting, that festival, was the Lord's coming and his reign. And so, Jesus states in, in chapter 8 of John and in chapter 9, I am the light of the world. And Simeon, as he looks at that baby, he says, this is the light that we have longed to see. It breaks through the darkness. When I was a kid, a group of us would play capture the flag at our church. Uh, they had a, a back property and then it went into a woods. It was awesome. We nearly got, I don't know how many stitches we got, but it was great. You would do it at night, pitch dark. The darker it is, the better. You couldn't see anything. You know, it concealed everything. You knew that the flags, the enemy's flag was up by the corner of the barn and there was a little light on that thing and so that was easy to see. But you couldn't tell anything. And then when some parent pulled up and the, the, part, the, lights, the headlights would shine across the field, you realized, oh my goodness, the enemy was right there. You didn't even realize how close they were. Right? And this idea that the light brought clarity, it brought exposure, and even as a kid, comfort from time to time. Why then do men and women love darkness rather than light, according to Scripture? Perhaps it's the hiddenness of sin, the secrecy of a lifestyle, <laughs> the exposure of warts and flaws. Or an understanding, really, the world is bankrupt. You're not going to find peace. You're not going to find hope in this world. Till you understand your own depravity, your inability to obtain peace, hope, and joy, aren't going to happen. Until you can appreciate the baby born in Bethlehem and an understanding of who you are, this really means nothing. It's just a nice Hallmark story or a quaint tradition. The light of the world, it's a light that provides direction, identity, security, safety, peace, and hope. And Simeon has been looking a long time, and he said, this is it. This is the light of the world. And Jesus understood that because, again, in chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. You meet in chapter 9, a guy who's born blind, cannot see. And the irony is, three times he demonstrates a, a better understanding of who Jesus is after his eyesight's been restored. And the religious rulers who should have understood demonstrate three times that they are blind. And Jesus has to repeat, I am the light of the world. God's revelation through his son provides a mean for Gentiles to participate. Notice what the text says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, while at the same time giving glory to God's chosen people, that is Israel. Notice the response. It says, so the children's father and mother were amazed. What were they amazed about? I mean, uh, didn't have to tell them this was a rather unusual pregnancy, <laughs> right? I mean, they've interacted with an angel. They, they were visited by shepherds who gave this astounding encounter with an angel and then a host that proclaimed. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. Read Mary's hymn in chapter one of Luke. 
She was very familiar with all of this. And they have to know their child is special. <laughs> and I know first-time parents all think their child is special. I understand that. But Jesus really was perfect, right? What a bummer for his siblings. Why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> There's no sinful nature. And, and so I ask you, why are you amazed at what Simeon has just declared? You knew all this. I will argue it's the statement in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is nothing they would have expected. That this should be on the lips of an elderly male priest in the temple is like fingernails across a blackboard in the first century. The first century Jew was very ethnocentric. They didn't sing be a missionary every day. If you wanted to come to Yahweh, you came to us. We didn't go to you. The Gentile was seen as unclean. The pagan. <laughs> Glory for your people, Israel. Yay, love that part. Revelation of the Gentiles. Whoa, this is a hard pill to swallow. And for Mary and for Joseph, they're shocked. And again, in an ethnocentric society, this would have been unheard of. Read Mary's hymn. She rejoices on God's blessing to his people, to the Israelites, the covenants that fulfilled. Read Zacharias, the Benedictus. It's the same thing. But when you get to Simeon, he says, no, this salvation isn't just for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. And this is part of what's driving Luke's gospel. He's a Gentile writing to Gentiles, to Theophilus in particular, a Gentile. Look at this starting in January. And, and what Luke is trying to show is he pins this narrative that Jesus is a savior for all people. Not just the who have it all together. It's for those on the margins of society, Gentiles, the poor, the beggars, the women. And, and so it shouldn't shock you as you read the gospel of Luke and you compare it to the other gospels, you're going to find a whole lot more material on women and on the poor and, and on the tax collectors, boo hiss, and all these people who are on the outskirts because we have a savior for all people. And Simeon understood this. He said, this is a light to all. And so Mary and Joseph as they say in Scotland, were gobsmacked, amazed at what was said about their little baby Jesus. And Simeon also blesses the parents. And then he says to his, the, his mother, Mary, and listen to the words. This is a tough pill to swallow. He's going to give her two things. He says, first of all, he says, he, after he blesses Mary and, and Joseph, he says, listen carefully. This child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be rejected. I wouldn't recommend saying this to your friends who just have a newborn, right? You're going, whoa, whoa. You're, you're, we just dedicated this baby to the Lord. We expected some glorious praise and you're telling us he, he's gonna separate people? Yes, 
The rising and the fall is an idea of the cornerstone, which serves as a stumbling stone throughout Old and New Testament. 1 Peter 2 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and listen to this, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who reject this baby will fall, while those who accept him in faith will rise up. Simeon clearly indicates that there will be a diversity of response in Jesus. It's coming. And he's not done. After he gives this little gem, he says to Mary, which is even, uh, this is a really difficult pill. He says, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your heart. On one level, it will, because at the first miracle at Cana, already we have this tension between Mary and Jesus. She's not fully understanding exactly how Jesus' role is going to be as the Savior of the world. But on a, a much grander scale, let's go to Calvary, where Mary watches her own son, her, well, one of her sons, but her firstborn, her perfect son, be crucified. And then one of the most horrific known acts of, of execution that's been devised by men and women. Crucifixion, the shame, the agony, and all that that comes. No wonder Simeon will say a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. That little baby, how cute it is in, in the manger in your, your nativity set. Don't forget. <laughs> It's come, and it's calling for the world to respond. What are you going to do with Jesus? Furthermore, it's come in order to die on a cross for our sin. He has to do that in order for the salvation to occur. It's all tied together. You can't have one without the other. Well, what do we do with this? What, what are some principles for what I call the self-portrait? Letter A of your notes. Simeon testifies that God keeps his word. Instead of clinging to the what-ifs of life or harboring bitterness, we need to press forward clinging to the promises of God. It's reflecting this week, praying for all of you as a congregation and our elders. We as a body have experienced some difficult times these last couple months. Several of you have lost loved ones. The turmoil, the tension in our country politically. And the list goes on. Even Christmas, in some ways, doesn't seem the same. While you dread Aunt Betsy coming over, it is nice to have her there for Christmas, right? All these plans kind of... of spiraled out of control. You can't even give neighbors cookies because they freak out you have COVID. What do you do with all this? Scott Wesley Brown in his song that he wrote back in 1993, Showing My Age, When Answers Aren't Enough. Listen to the lyrics. You face the mountains of desperation. You have climbed, you've fought, you've won, but this valley that lies coldly before you cast a shadow you cannot overcome. And just when you thought you had it all together, you knew every verse to get you through, 
but this time the sorrow broke more than just your heart. And reciting all those verses just don't seem to do it. When answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. He's more than just an answer to your prayer, and your heart will find a safe and peaceful refuge. When answers aren't enough, he is there. Instead of asking why did it happen, think of where it can lead you from here. And as your pain is slowly easing, you can find a greater reason to live your life triumphant through the years. May we be similar to Simeon, keeping our eyes focused on the Messiah, embracing him with everything in us, and worshiping him. So Simeon testifies that God keeps his word. Secondly, Simeon reminds us we must not lose sight of our salvation. The cares of the world, the pressures of life, even the busyness of life can easily easily eclipse the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. After all those years of waiting, Simeon didn't lose sight of the promise of salvation. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes by one of my heroes of the faith, Corey Timboom. She writes, who can add to Christmas? <laughs> the perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift is that he gave his only son. The only requirement is to believe in him. And the reward of faith is that you shall have everlasting life. Do you know this Jesus? He's more than just a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths with a little bit of straw. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this one who is the light of revelation to the Gentiles, who's a light for the glory of the Jews? Do you know this Jesus? Have you embraced this Jesus? Or it's just been a little bit of lip service? We must not lose sight of our salvation. And it's easy, isn't it, in the Christmas season when you're trying to get all the gifts wrapped and now you've got to ship them all since you can't see family. Well, what do you do with all this, right? Or, let's face it, our culture's doing everything they can to strip us of any thought of Jesus related to Christmas. Don't lose sight. Simeon kept his eyes focused on this one who is to come. And he had the glorious opportunity of holding Jesus in his arms. And finally, salvation encompassed far more than a serene setting in a village in the hills of Israel. It entailed great sorrow, suffering, and sacrifice. I have there in your notes, in the gospel story, one cannot have a cradle without Calvary, sackcloths without scourging, or a creche without crucifixion. The most precious gift you could ever have received for Christmas was given by God himself over 2,000 years ago, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so, O oh come, all you faithful, rejoice. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the light that is revelation to the Gentiles, a light which is glory to Israel, has been born. Embrace this one. Father, indeed, we are so blessed. 
It's nothing. The, the, the whole point of the Christmas story in many ways is to say, we couldn't have done this on, us, on our own. We, the human race, needed you to intervene time and space, and you did. A miraculous birth. Fulfilling your word. Consolation has come to Israel, and in so doing, we, the human race, are blessed. Father, if there's someone here this morning who has based their salvation on things they do or hopes that they are going to make it in the end, the answer is so simple. It's so clear in the text. It calls simply to bend one's knee before God Almighty, to recognize that we are sinful before you, a holy God. Oh, yeah, we could find others who are worse or better. But before you, we're all wretched. And we are in need of a Savior. And your son came. He died on a cross, paid the sin for us. And he rose from the dead. And we simply need to trust and believe. Father, for those of us who know your son as our Savior, it's so easy to get lost in the busyness of life and the cares of this world and miss the wonder of this little baby. We thank you, Father, for that great gift. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray.